Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fight Night. I'm your host, Bell Traveler, and today I am with Dan Norton, another small fellow content creator, although from the right side of the political spectrum. Uh, today we were going to have a formal civil discussion slash debate, a little back and forth, uh, and where we outlined the contingencies between his ideology as well as my own. And with that being said, let us go ahead and get started. All right, cool. So, uh, Dan, why don't you introduce yourself, man? All right. Thanks for having me. I was uh, trying to get some debates going on various social media, and you were one of the few people who actually uh, uh, accepted the, the offer, so I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Dan Norton. I earned a PhD in philosophy a couple of years ago. And since then, I've been working on advancing the ideas of Ayn Rand using the internet. So, and that's about it. If you want to know more, feel free to uh, get in touch with me. Yeah. Dan's got a channel, don't you, Dan? I do. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I have a lot of videos about the topic of selfishness, which Ayn Rand wrote a lot about. Um, but I'm, recently, I've started to branch out into other areas such as this, having debates about capitalism versus socialism. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I watched some of your content, um, and uh, you were just having discussions with like some friends and neighbors about different topics, like going to some, what, some protests? Well, they weren't even friends and neighbors. Uh, most of the people I spoke with, they were just random people that I met on my university campus or just walking around town, um, literally the man on the street. Um, some I had known before, like I had a couple episodes with my professor at uh, University of California, Davis. That's where I did my, my uh, PhD. Uh, so, and I, I plan to do, I had some other videos with a professor and I plan to do more of those as well. But it's basically open to anyone. So anyone who's interested in having a philosophic conversation on, on something, um, that's uh, fair game. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, yeah. So Dan, your channel's uh, Dan Norton, right? Yeah. I, I think uh, there's a link now at youtube.com yeah. slash Dan Norton one will get you there. But also if you just type in the words, the selfishness project in the YouTube search engine, yeah, you'll find it that way too. Tell, tell you what, um, after the stream's over, if you'd like to leave a comment uh, with a link to your channel, I will pin that comment for you so people can see it. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so on my end, I'm fellow traveler. You can call me Trav for short. I've got other names, other aliases as well, such as Chad Antifa. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, otherwise, yeah, you guys can just call me Trav. So I run a YouTube channel myself. I do Marxist-Leninist content and communist content where I talk about news, politics, economics, and current events from a far-left perspective. This channel is largely an educational project on my side. That's mostly what I'm trying to do, education, propaganda. And of course, we're all here trying to sell our ideology. And that's pretty much the reason why I'm here. And of course, entertainment's part of it as well. Let's have a little fun on the way. You know, we gotta we gotta have some fun. It can't just be all boring, sty and drill. But uh, yeah, so I've got a channel, which we're obviously hosting this on. And today, what was the debate topic? It's gonna be capitalism versus socialism, right? Right. Yeah, so now I think we both have our own definitions, but before we before we really start, because we both have opening statements, before we read off our opening statements, 
Um, I just want to make sure we're on the same page, at least definition wise. So what is your definition of capitalism and socialism? And then I'll give you mine. Okay. I just one other thing I forgot to say in my intro is um, I'm looking to grow my channel. So if you want to subscribe to my channel, that would be great. I also have a Patreon account. So if you want to support my work, uh, that would be great. Um, just forgot to mention that. Gotcha. So um, as for definitions of capitalism and socialism, so um, Ayn Rand gives a definition of capitalism, which I think is a good one, which is basically how I understand it. And I was also going to say what I mean by capitalism in my opening statement itself, but I can also say a bit now. So capitalism is a social system in which protects individual rights and in which um, all property is privately owned. So that's basically how I understand capitalism. And we can talk more about what exactly that means to protect individual rights. Right. Um, right. Basically, that, I think it means but not that's initiating more, force. Yeah, that's more into your objectivist philosophy, which we can get more into in your opening statement. Um, but yeah, uh, what were you, what were you going to say about socialism? Oh, so socialism, uh, I like, think a, a common definition is like the a social system in which the means of production are uh, owned in common or by the community or owned by yeah. the state, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so social ownership is a good yeah. word. It encompasses all those because there's different forms of social ownership, but yeah. So those are, I mean, pretty much same definitions as me. Capitalism is a system, an economic system centered around private ownership of the means of production, operating according to the anarchy of the market on a for-profit basis. Socialism is an economic mode operating on the social or common ownership of the means of production, uh, operating according to a plan. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's sufficient. Um, so we're here's how we're gonna decide who goes first on the opening statements. Um, I was going to toss a coin, but instead Dan gave me a, the idea to write um, a number between one and zero on a pen and paper. So Dan, why don't you do me a favor and call one or zero? All right. Did you already write the number on it? Yeah, I wrote it. Okay. So why don't you hold it up uh, without showing the number, but show the, the backside and then yeah. you can turn it over after I guess. So I am going to guess that you wrote a zero. Yep. All That's right. It. So I, you so decide I get, who goes first. Okay. And is this going to determine also the closing statement? Who goes first? Uh, nah, but, but just the opening statement. So will we do this again for the closing statement or will it be yeah. the same order? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. We'll do it again for, or actually no, we'll do it for the closing statement. Like who do you want to do the opening and closing statement first and last? Uh, I would like to go seconds. Okay. For, for both, if that's how we're doing it. Okay, so I'm gonna write that down. Okay. Me first. Open, close, Dan last. All right, and uh, one more thing. Uh, while you're doing your opening statement, if you're talking for a long time, I just want you to know that I am gonna have some notes ready. That way I can, you know, address all your points and I suggest you have a notepad in case I go on a long tangent as well. But anywho, so I'll go ahead and get started. So let me go ahead and start the timer. Um, I will start at eight minutes and 30 seconds. So I have until 18 minutes and 30 seconds to basically finish my opening statements. So we'll begin about 30 seconds.
Sound good? Yep. All right. I love me some cranberry juice. <laughs> good stuff right here. Checking out the YouTube to see what the delay is on this. Yeah, there's usually about a minute delay, but anyways. Oh, that much. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Socialism is an economic and political mode centered around the social ownership of the means of production. Now, social ownership can take different forms, but for the sake of this talk, we shall be assuming a combination of nationalized industry and cooperative enterprises jointly owned by workers. In such a society, the op the economy operates not according to profitability and free competition, but according to a plan drafted from the bottom to the top. Production targets are set according to demand inputs, use values are produced as a cooperative endeavor on part of society, and raw economic calculation and resource management would be done utilizing a combination of computers and IT. In the same manner that feudal economic relations are an improvement relative to slave economies, and capitalism is overall considered an improvement relative to feudalism, we Marxists hold that socialism is not only an improvement relative to capitalism, but the next evolutionary step in our social development as well. So why is socialism superior? Well, for one, no more economic crisis, no more boom-bust cycles. The business cycles that are inherent to capitalism are a thing of the past, which means people's jobs, and by extension, their livelihoods are not contingent on profitability. It means there's no longer the pressure by big industry to externalize lost profits at the expense of the public. At the same time, it also means less waste and inefficiency. The reason why companies bury or toss surplus stock is because they can't sell any of it and realize return on investment. So all of that human labor time just ends up getting wasted, which is also a tragedy from an environmental standpoint as we live on a finite planet with finite resources. For two, no more unemployment, poverty, or gross income inequality. All three of these things are inherent to capitalism due to its competitive nature and zero-sum game propensities, and according to massive amounts of data collected across dozens of countries by Wilkinson and Pickett in their book titled The Spirit Level, greater inequality is correlated with greater poverty, crime, infant mortality, teen pregnancy, drug abuse, mental illness, suicidality, and a host of other negative public health outcomes listed throughout their work. However, under socialism, barring things like the common fund, taxes, and social security, that is, the, so the surplus stock needed to reinvest and maintain the upkeep of society, workers would receive the proceeds of their labor exploitation free, meaning the surplus value that is extracted from the general public would no longer go to private, enrich yeah, private enrichment at the expense of the majority. This also means shorter work week, as people are no longer working extra hours to produce to reproduce the ruling class, and reduced social alienation, which is at the heart of all the forms of psychological depravity in modern society. And that brings me to point number three. Under socialism, there are no rents, there are no dividends, advertising, stock buybacks, wage labor, royalties, or intellectual property. Every form of human exploitation of the note will be eliminated. And where does all of this unearned surplus go if not in the hands of vampires? Back into the hands of the people is the answer. From there, people will decide democratically what to do with the surplus, and this means more resources will be on the table for reinvestment, economic expansion, large infrastructure projects, and last but not least, higher wages for everybody. And lastly, due to the chronic push to realize return on investment, 
due to the endless pursuit of greater profits, it is now costing us our planet as well. We are living in the middle of a mass extinction events primarily driven by unsustainable human industrial activities, taking more from the world than what it can reproduce. And mind you, many products today are designed inferior on the spot as to drum up repeat purchase. All one has to do is look at the seas of landfill landfills full of broken electronics and single-use plastic items to see this in, in effect. But under socialism, we could hypothetically tackle the problem in a real, meaningful, direct way. Under socialism, we could take the Earth's resources and utilize peak efficiency out of them within the context of a rational economic plan, meeting human need, ending poverty, and reconciling our relationship with our earthly habitat in the process. I could go on and on about the benefits to public health, to efficiency, sustainability, shorter work weeks, but for brevity's sake, I shall finish with a study from ncbi.gov about the socialism and the quality of life. I shall now quote from the abstract. Quote, this study compared capitalist and socialist countries in measures of the physical bank quality of life, taking into account the level of economic development. The World Bank was the principal source of statistical data, which pertained to 123 countries and approximately 97% of the world's population. PQL variables included indicators of health, human services, demographic conditions, and nutrition, infant mortality, child death rate, life expectancy, crude death rate, crude birth rate, population per physician, population per nursing person, and daily per capita calorie supply, measures of education, adult literacy rates, enrollments in secondary education, and enrollment in higher education and a composite PQL index. All PQL measures improved as economic developments increased. In 30 of 36 comparisons between countries at similar levels of economic development, socialist countries showed more favorable PQL outcomes, P less than 0.5 by two-tailed t-tests. This work with the World Bank's raw data includes cross-tabulations, analysis of variance, and regression techniques, which have all confirmed the same conclusions. The data indicated that the socialist countries generally have achieved better PQL outcomes than the capitalist countries at equivalent levels of economic development. I rest my case. As time, as time has gone on, as production and big business consolidates, production goes from a competitive endeavor to a more social one. Small-scale production becomes large-scale production. More and more the government plays a role in the economy as most of our new scientific innovation comes from the public sector central planning, not from the private sector, which puts to the rest the age-old myth about capitalism and innovation. The point here is that the more advanced that a given capitalist country becomes, the more that its mode of production begins to resemble that of socialism. People don't realize it, but in a sense, we already do have a planned economy. Amazon and Walmart are a living, breathing examples of centrally planned institutions in practice. It's just they're tooled for profit on a basis of private enrichments. But imagine if we could rein these corporations in. Imagine if we could transform them into public property and overturn their economic decision-making over to the democratic will of the public. Imagine how much more free and better off that we would be in such a context. We as historical materialists, as Marxists, don't make absolute assumptions about history. Human progress is not linear. It ebbs and flows with some eras, such as the Chinese Revolution or the Cuban Revolution manifesting as times of glorious civilizational progress, while others manifesting as eras of blackest reaction, such as with the illegal, undemocratic disillusion of the Soviet Union under the Tsar Boris Yeltsin, or the Bourbon restoration of monarchy in the 19 or 1830s in France. I do not hold that socialism is inevitable. 
simply that it is the next logical evolutionary step in human societal progress, and that capitalism, a system that is inching closer and closer to its own demise through its own inherent contradictions, will lay bare the path to such a failure, to such a future free from exploitation and autocracy. That is, a future that works to the advantage of all human beings, a future where we no longer have been brought, a future where we have been brought back into balance with mother nature, a future where man is no longer a product of his environment, but its master. I can only hope that this rationale becomes self-evident to enough people before it's too late. And I shall finish with this. When you think deeply about it, there really is no good argument in favor of capitalism over socialism, and many of the arguments that you do hear against socialism are nothing more than thought-terminating cliches along the lines of, quote, communism killed 100 million people, quote, go out and live in the woods, quote, get another job, quote, you're just jealous of the rich, quote, mustache man bad, quote, something, something innovation, quote, something, something human nature, etc. None of these arguments, when put under any kind of scrutiny, hold up and are simply pre-programmed responses meant to shut down critical thought in an intellectually bankrupt attempt to keep people from coming to the obvious conclusion that a society based on planning, cooperation, long-sightedness, and sustainability is superior to one based on competition, exploitation, nearsightedness, and the zero-sum game. But in the end, as capitalism begins to crumble, as the cracks within the system start to show, we will eventually reach a fork in the road, and the choice is ours as to which side we will walk. Socialism or barbarism. All of society's major contradictions find origins in the economic base, and until we change that, things will only continue to get worse. I shall now yield the rest of my time. All right. So before I do my opening statement, I just want to say my I'm out here with my laptop. So the battery is uh, has limited uh, capacity here. It, it should be plenty enough power here to do my opening statement and well beyond that. But if I do get low on battery and start to run out, I'll just call back in on my phone and then we can continue. Okay, so now to my opening statement, let me start my timer. Pull up. Okay. So first I want to be clear on what I mean by capitalism. Are you, are you starting your opening statement? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Could you start at 19 minutes for me? Just oh, so I, I, I can't see the, uh, I was just using my own stopwatch. I don't oh, see the- Oh, right, uh, right, right. Well, go ahead and restart it. My bad. I, I apologize. Oh, no problem. Okay. Okay, so first I want to be clear on what I mean by capitalism. I understand capitalism to be a social system that is based entirely on voluntary relations. People are free to do whatever they want as long as they do not initiate force against others. The government's only role under capitalism is to protect people from force. So I'm not an anarchist. I do think there should be a government, but a limited government. So the limited kind of government that I think there should be under capitalism is a police force to protect people from domestic criminals. There should be a military to protect people from foreign aggressors. And there should be a court system to peacefully settle disputes between people. But that's about it. So what there isn't under capitalism is taxation. The very limited government that I envision will be funded by voluntary means. There will be no welfare, 
no social security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no government education, no government roads, no Federal Reserve Bank, no regulatory agencies such as the FDA, SEC, and FCC, no bailouts of corporations, no state religion, no faith-based laws prohibiting abortion or stem cell research, no minimum wage, no antitrust laws, no, no laws restricting the number of immigrants, no wars, unless they are for the purpose of protecting our own citizens. I could go on, but that's enough for now. There has never been a purely capitalist country, but perhaps the closest the country has come to pure capitalism is the United States of America in the late 19th century, after slavery had been abolished and before the so-called progressive, progressive era of the early 20th century. The United States experienced explosive growth during this period with millions of people choosing to immigrate here because it was the land of freedom and opportunity. The Statue of Liberty symbolizes what America stood for. It is not an accident that relatively free countries like America became wealthier than relatively unfree countries. But why is this? Why does freedom lead to prosperity? Because people have an incentive to produce when they are left free. If you can keep the results of your work, if it is not forcibly taken from you and given to those who haven't earned it, then you have an incentive to produce. People will acquire different amounts of wealth because of different abilities, as well as for other reasons, but not because some have been uh, forcibly taken from others. Forcible taking of property from others is prohibited under capitalism. If the rich get richer, it's not because they stole from the poor, but it could be because they offer the world a valuable product or service, such as a car or a smartphone, which millions or billions of people benefit from and are therefore willing to pay for. Billionaire wealth creators get rich by making people's lives better, not worse. So they deserve to be thanked, not vilified. Sometimes they even get rich by giving us products for free, as in the case of YouTube and Facebook, which make most of their money through advertising. Billionaire CEOs certainly don't do everything on their own. They have teams of executives, managers, engineers, and so on, all the way down to janitors that help keep the place clean. But CEOs make the most important decisions, the decisions that affect the fate of the entire company, that can earn it a fortune or drive it into bankruptcy. It is very rare to find someone with the intellectual ability required to be a great CEO, which is why they get paid so much. By contrast, almost anyone has the ability to be a janitor. The CEO may get paid a thousand times more per year than the janitor, but his skill set may also be a thousand times rarer. Likewise, a star athlete like LeBron James may get paid a thousand times more than the guy running the hot dog stand, but his skill set is also astronomically more rare. The pay gap between a star CEO or athlete and a janitor is not an injustice. It's a recognition of the fact that different people contribute vastly different levels of value to an organization. And recognizing that is an act of justice. It would be unjust not to pay people according to their widely varying abilities. Yet that is exactly what socialism does. Under socialism, people are not rewarded for their ability, but for their need. As Marx said, quote, 
from each according to his ability to each according to his need, unquote. Individuals of ability are sacrificed for the sake of individuals who lack ability. What's worse, under socialism, this is accomplished by force. Socialism abolishes private property and coercively distributes goods to all in common. Some are allowed to use force to live as parasites on others. In the long run, everyone is worse off under socialism. The parasites drain their hosts and the entire society collapses into poverty or else they initiate a war of aggression against another country in search of new hosts for their parasitism. Though that only delays the inevitable collapse. In principle, sacrificing individuals of ability is an unsustainable policy since human ability is what sustains human life. It is no accident, therefore, that socialism always fails. It inevitably leads to poverty, starvation, and death. It is sometimes said that socialism is good in theory, but it just doesn't work in practice. I say it is bad in theory, and that's why it doesn't work in practice. It is not a good theory that says you should sacrifice individuals of ability to those in need. That is a recipe for disaster. Capitalism, which rewards human ability, is a recipe for success. But isn't capitalism selfish? This point, I believe, is capitalism's major stumbling block, the reason why it is resisted despite its record of success. Conventional morality considers selfishness to be evil and self-sacrifice to be good. And it sure doesn't seem like you are engaged in self-sacrifice when you are driven by the profit motive, greedily pursuing money for yourself. But what exactly is selfishness? Typically, being selfish is understood to mean acting in a way that benefits yourself while doing harm to others. For instance, you cut in line at the grocery store, or you set up a Ponzi scheme, as Bernie Madoff did, and bilk people of their wealth. But what if you act so as to benefit yourself without harming others? For instance, what if you are alone on an island and build yourself a shelter? Is that selfish? If not, what do we call it? selfless? That doesn't seem right either. Or what if you buy a new car? You benefit yourself by buying the car. Is that selfish? It seems we do things all the time that benefit ourselves, but that are not harming others, and that might even help others. For instance, when you help yourself by buying the car, you also help the person you bought it from by giving him money. So if being selfish means acting in a way that benefits yourself while harming others, then perhaps we need another term for acting in a way that benefits yourself without harming others. In any case, in capitalism, the way to benefit yourself is through trade, which benefits others as well as yourself. Trade is a win-win kind of relation. In socialism, by contrast, there are win-lose relations when some are forced to be hosts for the parasitism of others. Thus, it is socialism, not capitalism, that enables selfishness in the conventional sense of that term. Ayn Rand, who has greatly influenced me, did not understand selfishness in the conventional sense as involving harm to others. She thought it simply meant being concerned with one's own interests. And in fact, she thought that if one were really concerned with one's own interests, one would not harm others, as Bernie Madoff did. Consider what happened to Madoff. His life collapsed, and he's now serving a 150-year sentence in jail. 
If you are really concerned with your own interests, Ayn Rand taught, you will treat people justly and not use force or fraud against them. You will engage in mutually beneficial win-win relationships. This morality of rational selfishness, as Rand sometimes calls it, whereby you neither sacrifice yourself to others nor sacrifice others to yourself is the morality that underlies capitalism. It is the morality of self-sacrifice that underlies socialism. If self-sacrifice is good, as conventional morality holds, then I agree, I agree that so socialism is the better system because it certainly does a better do job at destroying the lives of individuals. But if self-interest is good, then capitalism is the better system because it does a better job at enabling individuals to live successful and happy lives. All right, that's the end of my statement. All right, perfect. All right, so you said a lot of stuff and I took notes. So let me think for a moment what exactly I'd like to tackle. If there's anything on your end you'd like to tackle about my opening statements, now would be the time. Otherwise, I'm just gonna go through. Um, so I guess I'm gonna go ahead and uh, start with this idea. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna talk about the small government stuff. I don't need to touch that. I think, so I guess I'll start with a couple things uh, or kind of a straw man of, uh, you said something along the lines of socialism um, only gives you what you need, but it doesn't give you any wealth beyond that. Um, or you talk about how capitalism rewards um, people that are like exceptionally skilled, right? Exceptionally innovative and talented individuals. Well, it rewards ability rather than need. Yeah, abil ability. So yeah, let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I got a good example of this. Um, let's talk about Bill Gates or Steve Jobs a little bit. You know about, you know anything about them? I know a bit. Yeah. So. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are some of the most innovative men on planet Earth. They invented the mouse, the keyboard, the innovative technology that goes into the computer from the central processing unit, as well as uh, the technology that goes into the modern PC, mouse, keyboard, and all that, that makes it easily accessible, that turns it from a piece of hardware that requires a, a person with a science degree to use to where a little kid can use it. Um, and by the way, up to this point, I have been lying. Um, the technology that actually goes into the computer was actually developed by a company called Xerox Park. Um, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates just came along and took those ideas and profited off of them. Uh, they did not come up with the original idea. They took credit for work other people did. Um, within your morality, or at least within your worldview, um, is this an example of them legitimately becoming very wealthy? even though they profited off of an idea that wasn't even their own? So on my view, as long as they didn't use force, physical force to, to um, make their wealth, then I think it's fine. So if they did, if they act, literally stole something, if they violated someone's property rights, which might be intellectual property rights, then I would say that's wrong. And I don't know, I've, I've heard things said about uh, them stealing stuff. I don't know all the details of that and whether that's true, but if it is true that they, they actually violated someone's rights and there was no voluntary agreement involved in getting the rights to this, then I would oppose it. All right. Fair enough. All right. 
Well, I think that makes you more ideologic. That makes you ideologically consistent. Um, so another example that I'd like to talk about is you brought off. You brought up Bernie Madoff, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So he was one of the few bankers that was responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008 that actually saw jail time for his crimes. And the reason for this is because he ripped off other rich people. He didn't just rip off the general populace. He also ripped off other rich people. However, when you look at Wells Fargo and a lot of the Goldman Sachs executives and a lot of the people that were responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008, many of them have not seen a day of jail time. They might have had to pay some fines, but none of them went to jail. In fact, many of them went on to get recruited into Trump's cabinet back in 2016. So my point here is you talk about how fraud is, is punished and how, you know, fraud is, you know, disciplined, but we're seeing all these people who are practically untouchable just because of the sheer volumes of wealth that they hold. And so my question, my, my next question is, I mean, is that necessarily justified? Like, how do you, how do you reconcile that is just my question, I suppose. Okay, so uh, again, I don't know all the details about that example and the CEOs at Goldman Sachs and elsewhere and what exactly happens. Um, but if they engaged in fraud or force, they lied to people and people were led to think that um, the terms of their investments were going to be such and such, but they ended up not being that. So people uh, voluntarily consented to X but the actual terms were non-X, then that would be fraud, um, and I would oppose that. So right. um, I don't know if that's what happened, but if that is what happened, then I would I would oppose that. Yeah, so let me let me follow up with another question. Um, I'm gonna have a lot of these, by the way. But, okay. Uh, so the next one is, if these people are so wealthy and powerful that they can bypass the legal apparatus and basically get away with fraud and ruining countless people's lives, if they're effectively above the government and the government's not going to prosecute them, then my question to you is, don't you think there's a problem there that if, because you consider America to be the closest version of uh, capitalism that you want, right? Minimal government plenty of business opportunities. It's a capitalist playground, am I right? Well, not today. It, it used to be much closer in the late 19th century, but today I, I think we're, we've come very, very far from capitalism. Are you, are you sure? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. for over 100 years, the, the government has been growing. I mean, the income tax amendment was passed in 1913. Same year, the Federal Reserve Bank was established. Um, the whole FDR administration, all the alphabet agencies, social security is a massive wealth redistribution scheme, Medicare. We've had financial regulations with Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, we've had massive uh, stimulus bills, um, manipulation of the currency, fiat currency, um, government education, government roads. We got tons of government intervention in the economy. So I think today it would be a straw man to point at a certain thing going on today and blame everything on capitalism. I mean, I but, think there are elements of capitalism that you can point to. But, like, but, well, let me let me interject. Um, 
let's say we did live hypothetically like where you're talking about where all the utilities and healthcare is privatized and these same people go on to do the same thing in anyways and the economic crash happens i don't see how whether or not the government owns the roads has anything to do with the fact that these people are so unbelievably wealthy that they're functionally above the law so my question to you is how do you reconcile or deal with something like that well i don't i don't know that there is uh, of that to deal with. I don't think anyone is above the law in a capitalist system. You can't buy your way. If you murder somebody, it doesn't matter if you were a billionaire or if you were, you know, impoverished, you're going to jail or you may, maybe you'll be killed if there's capital punishment. So if, if you're not being treated equally under the law, then that's, that's a violation of the, the system I advocate. Yeah. Um, but my question is why should they care? Why should they respect your laws? Their goal is to get rich, right? What's good for me is right, right? So commit a little fraud, uh, get a million people evicted from their homes, cause a few thousand suicides. But hey, I got I got rich off of it. I was just following the principles of private enrichment. So my question is like, barring morality, what is stopping these people from doing it again? Well, if if you're going to throw morality out, I don't know that there is anything that would stop someone. But I don't I don't think it's good a good idea to throw morality out. The way I think of morality is that it's a tool for helping your life go well. It's a tool for achieving happiness. And I don't think the road to happiness is to screw other people over. And I think what happened to Bernie Madoff uh, provides some example of this. I mean, I don't think he's doing too well right now, serving a hundred fifty year jail sentence and. He actually said, I've heard that he was miserable even before he was caught. He was living this lie. And I, I guess he, he maybe he had the sense, I'm living in a house of cards. This is an unsustainable practice. It's all going to come collapsing down. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what he thought. But I think that's the kind of position you put yourself in. If you, if you lie to people, you basically put yourself at war with other people. Uh, you're living a lie. And I don't think that's a that's a way to live that's going to promote your own happiness, promote healthy relationships with people. Um, if you act like a jerk and screw people over, I mean, I'm not going to be, want to be your friends. Um, I think you'll get a bad reputation. I think it's going to come back to hurt you. So I don't think acting as a jerk or someone who violates other people's rights is actually in your own interest. Yeah, but there's two problems. Uh, it it might seem like that from a morality standpoint, but not everybody thinks the way you do. People, as you, you know, even as I recognize a Marxist, people are self-interested. And there's a thing called incentives. But I mean, don't you think it's kind of a problem that within the context of like a, a personal uh, for-profit driven economy that there's an even an incentive for people to rip one another off in the first place? Because you name Madoff, yeah, he's one person. But as I've stated before, he's one among many rich people who or many investors and many bankers that basically had ran fraud as a business model. But the vast majority of people that were responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis of 08 have not seen a day of jail time. At most, they've had to pay some fines, you know, which is nothing. These people should they they're functionally buying their way out of jail, you know, so that that's primarily what I'm talking about. Like morality, people's morality doesn't dictate how they're going to behave. People will, people, there's plenty of instances where human beings will do something wrong or impulsive and then they'll justify it to themselves later, you know?
So if there's nothing but besides morality that's stopping these people from ripping everybody off, then I would say that's a pretty significant problem in the system, don't you think? Yeah, if there's nothing besides morality, but I think there is. I mean, there are, there are laws that prevent fraud, and I think uh, those... It, I mean, you could get away with... Um, fraud for a while but in the long run i don't i don't think you will i think you will be caught and i think the free market will evolve mechanisms to to catch you because there are people uh, there are bad actors out there and there's an incentive on the part of people who are not bad actors to filter them out of the system so um they're you know con uh consumer protection you know some of the things that government does i think there could be a private mechanism for them, um, like the FDA comes to mind. Uh, you don't want companies putting dirt in food and, uh, you know, sweeping stuff off the floor or whatever and sticking it in the food and then selling it to people. Um, I don't think it's in companies' interest to kill their customers. So I don't think they're going to uh, do very well in the long run if they if they do things like that. They're going to tank their but, reputation. But, but, but even if they do things like that, I think there were there would be, uh, there might be some bad actors who, who try to get short-term gains like that, but I think mechanisms, com uh, consumer protection groups will evolve that will uh, root those things out, and much quicker so, than I think. So, so you do agree that there should be some caps, there should be some uh, state intervention in the market, because that's not, that's not a market mechanism, or the idea of having a consumer protection bureau, I mean, I've never heard of a privately owned consumer protection bureau. I suppose you could, I don't even know how that would turn a profit, but uh, you're talking about government regulations to prevent abuses of power from happening in the first place, right? Uh, what I meant was uh, with the consumer thing, something like consumer reports. I think they. It, this is a private organization that reports on various companies. So you could look to something like that. It doesn't have to be run by the government. You could have private organizations that uh, are like Yelp, you know, reviews of places. Um, yeah. So you're not just going in blind. You have uh, lots of people who have relied on this source before and they've they've acquired a reputa reputation for giving reliable reviews. You could have something like that, I think. Yeah, like a like a website where people review. All right, sure. Um, you could definitely have things like that, but my my question is what if there's what if there's uh, no alternative is the other question because business has a propensity to consolidate over time what if uh there's a, a t like a macy's or a t-shirt store of some kind that's uh basically using s slave labor in bangladesh to make their t-shirts and then in order for all the other firms to stay competitive they too have to uh basically farm out uh, workers in Bangladesh to make their t-shirts. Um, I would have to pay significantly more to uh, have a, buy a t-shirt made at home, wouldn't I? Um, so I guess my next question is, what if they're all engaging in the same abusive practices? You think just some little guy is going to come along and be able to challenge the hegemony of these much larger, far more entrenched, well more established capitalist institutions? Uh, not necessarily. I don't think I don't think you have a right to just jump into a market and be able to compete successfully with the existing players. But I also would take exception to describing the wages as or slave labor. I think is the term you used. 
So <clears throat> I, I use that term literally, slavery. And I think if, if you're offering someone a, a certain wage and they voluntarily accept that, I don't count that as slavery. So um, I know that term is often used, but you know I, I disagree with that term. I think they might actually be making the people's lives better by giving them a better opportunity to work in this shirt factory than they could get from the people, the other people there offering them right, right. jobs. Now, now, now I want to go down this rabbit hole. All right. Okay. Now, and a lot of these countries like uh, India, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and deny that living standards will improve when you industrialize a country just because when you have large scale economics of scale, you're going to be able to produce more wealth. But it's my issue is in the fact that it raises living standards so much slower. And when you consider that a lot of these people were had their they were farmers, many of them were agrarian subsistence farmers that worked like five to six hours a day on a field on plantation, growing their own crops and then selling them at local markets. Uh, some corporation comes in, sets up shop. The government is a uh, Bank, basically morally bankrupt. They're willingly selling out their own population to be exploited for pennies an hour. And uh, these people go from working four to six hours a day uh, to having their commons enclosured on. And uh, because all this land ends up getting privatized, by the way, a lot of this land just gets bought up from under their feet and they end up being forced to live in cities where they work for pennies an hour, 10 to 12 hours a day in factories, six to seven days a week. I mean, I just don't really see, I, 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 just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't really see how this is necessarily voluntary, it is what I'm trying to say. Well, it's, it's uh, I guess it's voluntary in the sense that they, they could, maybe they could continue working as farmers, um, but I don't know if you're saying they're, they're not, but it's, it's, it's voluntary in the sense that, um, and no one is putting a gun to their head and say, you must accept this job or I'm going to kill you. Um, they're not being put in chains like the actual slaves were in, in America. Um, but, but why does it have to get to that point? Are, aren't there other ways to coerce people into doing what you want them to do without necessarily having to put a gun to their head? Don't you think there are passive ways to coerce people into making choices that are to your benefit at their expense? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, coercion, I take that to mean physical physical force. So if you're not using or threatening somebody with physical force, I don't count it as co coercion. I think you can offer opportunities that incentivize people to go in a certain direction, but I don't think offering somebody an opportunity is the same as coercing them. All right. Well, what I, what I mean, and this has happened historically in Europe, I, I guess you don't know what the enclosure of the commons are, but a lot of these agrarian peasant communities, you had peasants that were living on these lands, but since the feudal lords and barons were gone, their legal protections were gone. So what happened was a lot of these big businesses enclosed on these commons and they privatized all the land and basically evicted all these peasant communities and they didn't really have any choice except to go and live in cities, you know? So their land was privatized. They had no legal protections to it anymore because the land was literally never theirs. It was bought from underneath their feet. All right. 
but they were living independent on that land. But because they never legally owned the land, they were just tolerated until capitalism came along. A lot of these people were basically forcibly integrated into cities where they went from being subsistence farmers to working 14 hours a day, oftentimes getting worked to death in factories. I'm just saying like, yeah, they don't have to go. It is a choice. They don't have to choose to live in the cities. All right. They can go out and live in the woods and eat and pick berries and uh, grow their own food. But at least until they come for them, too, because there's a propensity for enclosure to, to for capitalism to enclosure on the commons so they can privatize it, package it and then sell it with a little little tie on top of it. You know, little little nice little ribbon on it. So I don't know much about the enclosure, uh, what happened there, um, but I think if they if they were, I don't know that there should be any commons in the first place. Like if they're living on this land and they're working this land, then I don't see why that shouldn't mean, I mean, they could rent it, I suppose. Um, they were renting it. So they had landlords at one point. And uh, they were the barons, the feudal kings and lords, sold off a lot of their land so they could get rich themselves. And uh, basically, the peasants did not have any legal legal ownership of the land. They were just having it rented out by, from the landlord class. And uh, when the landlord sold off all that land to the capitalists, uh, the capitalists just came along and had their asses evicted because they were going to turn that land into a pet project like enclosure is a century long process that still goes on to this day it, it goes on uh it's gone on in india and uh some other countries in southeast asia now with the rise of neoliberalism so again i don't see how this is a voluntary when you had no legal uh rights to the land and then you go from living there to just the, the your landlord selling it and then the person who owns it now just evicts you as what has happened historically yeah so um i i wonder if we're sort of starting out midstream here coming into a system that was already one run by force like if you have these feudal barons who uh used you know through wars of conquest or whatever came to have power over certain parcels of land and that, that gave them bargaining power that they could then later use to sell it off to capitalism capitalists um, that can be kind of messy um, to figure out exactly how you deal with that and where the rights are I think sometimes in in discussing uh, these sorts of issues maybe it's useful to think of like someone on a desert island all by himself and he's just starting out and he's he's working the lands and uh uh he's using his own labor to make the lands uh, produce some kind of value some kind of crop or whatever and then i think you can um tell a story of how his ownership comes to be and how he comes to have rights over uh the products of his labor and then maybe he can sell it off to someone um and maybe you know there's a way to tell a story of how people could uh as time goes on, they're, they're pr consistently presented with better and better opportunities rather than uh, starting midstream where people have been forcibly subjugated for, for decades or centuries. And then they have some, some really bad option at the end of that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think depending on how you approach this, there might be a, a, a totally voluntary story you could tell about how this would work out. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could probably find a 
historical anecdotes of that going on, but it's just historically, uh, when we talk about free association and free trade and how we associate capitalism as this peaceful system, capitalism's foundation was based on a lot of land theft, exploitation, war, uh, resource theft and literal slave labor at some points. Like, I mean, the, when America started, it was a colony that was found, found a lot of it was just founded on slavery and just land theft. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why we went to war with the British was so that we could continue to steal land from the native Americans. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's the idea that capitalism was established peacefully and the idea that it's just this voluntary system. Uh, I mean, for one, it's not true. Like there's been massive amounts of direct coercion, coercion that's been used on the general populace, even to this day, by the way. But even then, even if you just take passive coercion, yeah, you're right. I could work my job and or I could not work a job and just go out in the streets and prostitute myself or be a hobo or whatever. But my point is, if the choices I'm being given are all shitty and I have to choose the least shitty choice out of all these other shitty choices that I have, then what meaning is the choice? You see what I'm saying? Well, I think the worst choice is when or the worst case is when you're forced, when you don't have a choice at all. And that's what I oppose. And to your point about capitalism was based on theft and slavery, I say it wasn't capitalism if it was based on theft and slavery, because a, the core principle of capitalism is that you cannot force people. So if, if the Europeans forcibly took uh, land or, or killed the Native Americans, I disagree with that. So I don't think everything that was done is, uh, was, it wasn't something I would endorse. So, you know, if, if the Indians, if they started massacring the, the uh, Europeans without provocation, then I think the Europeans would have a right to in, use force in self-defense. So I think it's fine to use force in retaliation, but I don't think it's ever right to initiate force. But, but it's, it's not about morality. It's about uh, motivated interests. It's about the interest of groups acting against the interests of other groups. I mean, my here's my issue. I'm more than willing to sit here and concede that there have been mistakes and blunders and shortcomings to those who are members of my camp, but I just don't really see how that's how that's not how that's fair on my end when I could admit these things. But then when I bring these things up to you, you're just like, oh, well, that wasn't real capitalism because, you know, in my version of capitalism, there is no, there is no violence. So it can't be capitalism's fault. I mean, do you, do you not see how that's kind of like, what I'm trying to say is it's a no true Scotsman fallacy. And I'm just bringing that up right now. I don't see what's wrong with it. I mean, I've, I, I've always said that I oppose coercion. So yeah. And, and I don't, I think I take it as part of what capitalism, capitalism is, is that you can't coerce people. So if there is coercion going on, I don't think that's capitalism. All right. Well, the issue is I can find plenty of examples of it. I mean, coercion is going to exist in some form or another. Maybe we just have a different definition. Um, it doesn't have to be by point of a gun. You can just be given like a really shitty situation and then a really ultra omega shitty situation. And, uh, you can either, you can, you have a choice, you have a choice. Both outcomes are going to be horrible. Um, but I mean, you can go and work a job so you can make another man rich and live paycheck to paycheck, or you can just 
go out, go out and be homeless. What I'm trying to say is it's not really a meaningful choice. Um, and that's the heart of what I'm trying to get at. Like if you see what I'm saying? Well, if you really want meaningful choices, then I think you should oppose coercion. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I mean, think that's the absolute worst situation where you have why, no choice at all. Why, why is coercion bad? And, and we all, we should also be on clear on what we, we mean by coercion, um, because I think that can uh, fog up discussions of, of these kinds of issues. So um, you asked, why is coercion bad? Um, so, I mean, it, it stops you from being able to act on your own judgments. And I think it's good for, for an individual's own life to be able to act on his own judgment. Um, so if, I don't know, it, maybe a mugger is a good example. So I, I, uh, if, I, if I'm uh, mugged by someone on the streets, well, and he says, uh, you know, give me your, your wallet or I'm going to kill you. Well, how is that good for me? You know, I, I spent my time earning my money so that I could do things with my money that support and further my own life so that I could buy things that I enjoy, buy food. And all that time is just wasted. My life is basically just wasted. Um, all that mental work uh, that I did, or maybe physical work too, to earn that money is just down the drain um, when this guy confronts me with with this choice, give me your, give me your wallet or I'm going to kill you. So it's just, why is force bad? Well, it's just a drain on my life. It could end my life if he actually uses force to kill me. All right. So I have a anecdote I'd like to bring up that's sort of relevance to what you uh, just said. I was thinking of this while you were talking, but all right. So there's a, uh, in Panama, you have the Panama, Panama Canal. It's the water supply for all of the indigenous people of Panama, right? And uh, basically you have the government, the, Pan the Panamanese government basically pretty much sells it to the IMF because the IMF loaded them up on all this debt and so on. And so the IMF takes their water supply and they privatize it. All of a sudden, the water that people rely on to drink and shower in the Panama Canal costs several times more than uh, than what it did before. Um, do you think that the facts that they now have to pay substantially more for their water uh, is a form of coercion in a sense? Because, I mean, that's all the water that they had and they had no choice in uh, their government basically selling out their water supply to the International Monetary Fund. Okay, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, so I can try to think it through. Um, so, I guess who, whoever created the Panama Canal, uh, whoever did the work to to create this canal, should have the rights over it. So, if, um, and then I guess once they've created it, they could they could decide to sell off certain tributaries that might feed into it or feed out of it. And, you know, they could establish certain um, costs to use the water that's involved with the Panama Canal. Uh, well, so it, was the, it was the Panamanese government and uh, they basically got tricked into a debt trap. What the IMF does is it offers these tasty loans, these poor third world countries. They're uh, relatively undeveloped third world countries. And they'll put go in there with these infrastructure projects 
and give them aid for economic growth and development. And then what will happen is they'll basically, when they take this money, the government gets ensnared and trapped and shackled in so much debt that they couldn't possibly hope to pay off for centuries to come. They will spend literal centuries paying off this interest before they get the debt paid off. So they have no way of paying off this debt. So they're forced to privatize and sell out their country's assets to the IMF or let America build military bases in their country and so on. And, uh, yeah, there's a great book about it called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And he talks, this guy, John Perkins, talks about how it was his job to go to these third world countries and try and uh, trick these world leaders into accepting these predatory IMF loans. And uh, if they wouldn't accept the loan, the CIA would basically go in and, and try to coup the government and overthrow the government and install a new regime that would accept the loans so that private corp or private banks can come in. The IMF can just come in and uh, privatize all their assets and basically exploit the domestic populace, pollute their local land and gear their economy towards uh, profitable production towards uh, first world countries. So. If you don't, if I don't, if, and by the way, me as a Panamanese citizen have no say in that. I pay taxes to the Panama government. So uh, when the Panama government goes on and sells that canal that I was paying out of my tax dollars in order to finance, man, I had no say in that. Then IMF comes in, suddenly my water bill is five times higher than what it used to be. And this happened, by the way, there were riots across the Panama over it. And they ended up having to get the water back over it in the end. But yeah, no, this is just a real thing that happens in the real world, dog. And I just don't understand how you don't see this as coercive in some way, like even though there wasn't any force involved. Well, there's there's a lot going on there, and I don't know. I know very little about this, and I, I don't know much about the IMF and how it works. So I don't think I'm really in a position to comment or even ass assess whether there was coercion or was not coercion in this case. But one thing you did say uh, was that um, at a certain point, the the water was privatized. But on my view, it should already be privatized. I mean, th I guess there could be a, a a state where it's it's neither private nor public. But I don't think it should, or at least off the top of my head, I don't see that it ever should go from being public to being private because I don't think it should ever be public in the first place. I think things should be private. And um, I don't know how that affects the dynamics of what all is going on here, um, but maybe that would offer some kind of solution here yeah. uh, to a way that there's not coercion half yeah. involved, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty complicated case. Well, this is predatory finance capitalism. Uh, as I said, I know I said I wouldn't read the comments, but S4A put it beautifully, predatory finance capitalism. It, this is a global phenomenon. This goes on all over the world. And uh, it is the process by which the first world country in a neo-imperialist, neo-colonialist manner has been exploiting and deliberately keeping the third world poor for centuries. And it has largely been the third world rising up against the first world in revolutions and seizing self-determination for themselves that has allowed them to escape a lot of this debt entrapment and immiseration on their own terms. I'm not saying that like living standards don't get better over time, but they would get better a hell of a lot faster if you didn't have a global financial 
aristocracy hierarchy that was like basically deliberately deliberately retarding the development of smaller countries through these instairments and these traps and these uh, privatization schemes. So this is all within your morality, by the way, your framework and uh, how free trade and free association. I'm just demonstrating how very clear and obvious abuses go on within capitalism and how there is in fact an incentive to do this because it is a zero sum game centered around for profit measures at the end of the day, which is why I advocate for socialism basically. Okay. Yeah. So there, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, but um... I could, I could send you resources and I could send you plenty of material on the subject if you like. But I, I just, I mean, one, one comment I have is this, this idea of predatory finance capitalism. Um, I don't know that I would want to accept that term because the, the term predator uh, implies, or, or it could suggest at least that you're using force. And again, that's contrary to the basic principle of capitalism. So if they're just out pursuing a profit, I don't see that as necessarily uh, predatory. I wouldn't call that predatory. They're just trying to make a profit. I don't see a problem with that. And I think they could make, make others better in the process. Um, and I, I do think that the more capitalism there is around the world, the more people are going to rise out of poverty. I think it gives people more opportunities rather than holds them back. And yeah. you, can, you, can, you can speed up your your uh, standard of living in the short term, like a mugger can increase his standard of living very fast or a bank robber if he robs a bank. But, you know, is that a good policy to follow in the long run rather than a policy of freedom? I think it's not. I think in the long run, you're best off if you do follow a, a policy of freedom and not coercing people. Yeah. Um, so then what do you make of the role of the central intelligence in cooing Latin American governments? Because you've had Latin American countries that have refused to take loans and do business with the IMF. And they've had domestic labor and domestic resources that they wanted to use to build up their own countries uh, via protectionist trade policy, strong trade union movement and redistributive tax policies. Some of them are social democratic, others are socialist. But uh, they're either red or pink countries or countries that want to be red or pink. What do you make of the fact that the CIA, which is America's intelligence agency, has had a perpetual role in overthrowing democratically elected leaders in South America and installing uh, right, far right dictators and military regimes that are willing to sell out the domestic populace to the IMF? <laughs> okay. Um, so again, you're, you're, you're asking about things that I don't know much about. So I, I can only speak kind of abstractly. So, um, first of all, one thought is, uh, if they're dictators, I don't support that because that's contra dictators being people who coerce the population, who use force, who don't respect people's rights. That is not a kind of regime that I would support. Um, and I don't think Americans should be forced to prop up dictators or basically I, I don't see that Americans should be getting or the American government should be getting involved in other countries unless some other country is posing a, a, a physical a threat of physical force to our country. So if some other neighboring country wants to invade us and, you know, enslave our people. Um, then we, you know, we should activate the army and we should try to stop that. But I don't think we should like try to go to the Middle East and spread democracy as I think um, 
uh, Bush did during the, uh, you know, the wars in Afghanistan or, Af or one of the goals of his was to spread democracy to the Middle East. I don't think that's a proper foreign policy yeah. goal. But, but, it, but it can't be any other way. In order for America to continue to get richer, more specifically, the uh, global finance capitalists or the most wealthy oligarchs on the planet, in order for them to continue to get rich and wealthy, the more that they take, the less that there is to take. So in order to, for them to secure more and more profits and continue to privately enrich themselves, they have to engage in this sort of predatory behavior where they have, you know, deep state institutions like the CIA who do stuff like this. They have to engage in these predatory loans and this economic activity so they can massively reap profits. The reason why we went into Iraq was because it was functionally a hostile corporate takeover of the country because Saddam Hussein, who was our buddy in the 80s, decided to turn around and nationalize his oil industry. I don't think there's one country in Latin America or the Middle East that has tried to nationalize its industry and go socialist that hasn't been relentlessly fucked with by the United States and Western European intelligence. Okay, so a uh, couple thoughts. One is predatory loans. Again, that's kind of like predatory finance capitalism. Um, I'm hesitant to accept that term. Um, well, you don't, you don't think it's possible to take advantage of a person through loans, shackle them with more debt than they can ever hope to pay off, so you basically turn them into your bitch? You don't think that's possible? If you if you offer, I don't know that it is possible. Uh, if you are giving someone voluntary, happens all the time. Something it's they can right now, man. You, you can choose to take this loan or not take the loan. If you don't like the terms of it, if you think it's going to make you a, you know, cause you to have so much debt you'll never be able to pay it off, then I would say don't take the loan. But a lot of the times. There's no, there's no choice in the matter because, as I've stated, countries have refused the loans. And then the CIA comes, and then they overthrow the government. And if they fail to overthrow the government, America finds provocation to invade or bomb the country. That, that's my problem with all this. So, like, I mean, you're saying, like, choice and no coercion, but then, like, these people, they're so unbelievably wealthy and untouchable, they wield the power of the government and the military, and they're just able to go in and basically get in a new regime that will accept the loans. I mean, what is the general and the public doesn't have any way to fight against it? They don't have a way to say no. I mean, I guess they do, but it requires a massive amounts of organization. Like, the CIA is not infallible. They've been beaten before. They've been beaten by... Cuba, Hezbollah, I think they've been beaten by the Sandinistas, they've been beaten by Venezuela. They're not invincible, but like it's one of those things where the country has to see it coming. Okay, so when I was talking about predatory loans, I had in mind just private individual, like you go to a bank and you ask for a loan so you can buy a house or whatever, but you're talking about loans that- world. I'm talking about, in, I'm, not, I'm concerned with in practice right now, what I, what I see as capitalism in practice. And I don't think whether or not the roads are privatized is enough to indicate as to whether or not we live in a for-profit society or a non-for-profit society, basically. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that relates to the, the point about loans, but you, you were talking about predatory loans in the context of uh, the United States I think, making no, a loan 
to the IMF um, and World Bank are transnational corporations. They do not see nations. They operate not just in the United States, but in Britain, France, and Germany as well. But America is simply the military wing of the Western colonial bloc. Okay, there are so trade agreements. There are trade agreements. There are trade deals. There are these organizations between these countries that come together and collaborate on these sorts of projects. Okay, so I don't have a good sense of what the IMF even is, so I'm not in a great position to comment, but you're describing it now, at least, as a a corporation that's... It's a bank. It's a, it's a tr they're transnational banks. Okay, so there, there are people in different countries who operate a bank, and they they make loans to countries around the globe yeah uh, yeah and uh they're i mean i know you don't like that word but they but they're loans that are predatory loans they're loans that are sent out with the intent to entrap these countries and exploit them for cheap labor and resources all right the only countries that haven't the the countries that haven't fallen for the debt trap uh i mean assuming conditions are ripe and they don't get sanctioned and they don't get continuously fucked with they're act they actually are able to do that they're able to grow their economy and improve living standards um but i want to get away from this i want to talk a little bit about uh the i want to talk a little bit about something you said here um so you earlier on your points against socialism you said socialism only pays people what they are only pays them what they need uh, that basically there are elites that are allowed to parasite off the system and that they're sacrificing skilled workers for personal enrichment. Is that right? Well, I, I don't think I said they, uh, socialism only pays what they need. Rather, I said it sacrifices individuals of ability to individuals who need. So, you know, Marx's statement from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Uh, uh, all right. So I want to clarify Within the context of uh, socialism, it's actually from each according to his, uh, it's from each according to his ability to each according to his work. So under socialism, there's still money and people are still um, given, well, not it's not money in the traditional sense, but people are still remunerated for their work, all right? People are still paid and they're paid according to their work and you have pay grades. So. In socialism and practice, there actually are like differentials and pay like higher skilled workers and, you know, people that are highly trained professional workers are paid more than just average industrial and agrarian workers. So it's not like everyone's paid the same and everyone has equal access to resources. Um, money means a lot less in socialism, but there are differences in skill gaps, which means there's differences in uh, pay. So there were some people that were uh, significantly wealthier than others, you know, but I mean, nothing like the inequality you see in America. I just wanted to clarify because the point is, is that when you say need, it's need to use value as in not just what you like bare bonus minimum. I'm talking like what you need for leisure as well, what you need for calories, what you need for enjoyment. The point is you're given what you need to live a respectable life, not just the bare bones minimum that you know you need in order to survive does that make sense well i i, I kind of see what you're saying but then yeah. i i would uh 
I guess I would challenge, well, one, one issue is what is the respectable life? And should you be able to force somebody to provide that for you? And that's the part that I, that I oppose is the forcing people to provide you with whatever you regard as a respectable life. All right. Well, under socialism, it's, it's really the state that's providing a lot of these things, the state or the jointly owned enterprises. I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, on the topic of coercion, I mean, fucking mother nature is coercive. So it's one of those things I don't really like. It's not really uniquely a bad phenomenon to me, I guess, but uh, a respectable way of life is just what you need in order to survive. Plus the stuff you need for leisure and a little bit more, you know, and, uh, a point you made is that socialist countries are really poor, and uh, that—that's one point that you made. They're really poor, right? Let, let's take North Korea. What, what? What? Let's let's talk an example. What are some socialist countries that are poor? Give me some examples. Lay them off. Cuba. Okay, you're right. North Cuba, Korea. Cuba and North Korea are very poor countries. Uh, it's too bad that they have all those sanctions on them, and they can't participate in global trade. And they're effectively barred off from the rest of the world. Otherwise, their economic problems probably wouldn't be nearly as bad as they are, would they not? Uh, I mean, there. I guess other other countries could help them out. I don't think they should. If if these are um, uh, regimes premised on the idea that it's okay to enslave your own people to coerce them, um, I don't think. I don't think those are regimes that we should be encouraging by propping them up. Um, you, wouldn't I mean, be propping, you wouldn't be propping them up. You just wouldn't be denying them food and medical supplies and rare earth minerals that they need to build technology. Well, I don't think we should be forced to provide them these things. I mean, they could try Not, to provide for it themselves. They, they are. You're just, you're just letting them trade because of the sanctions America has on the DPRK and Cuba, they are not able to partake in global trade on any meaningful scale. They are basically isolated pockets that have to use whatever native resources and labor that they have to provide for themselves. And in spite of the worst sanctions in the history of sanctions, in spite of being uh, backed into a corner by the most powerful military power in human history, they still manage to, relative to their conditions, provide a respectable way of life for themselves. Now, you could bring this up if you look at the Human Development Index, which is a measure of the general living standards. It's a bourgeois metric, but it's good enough for this example, all right? Using even the bourgeois metric of HDI, if you compare Cuba to other countries of equal wealth in the region, like, say, Haiti, or compare the DPRK to Nepal, or most of India or other countries in the region of similar economic developments, you'll actually find that in spite of the sanctions, these countries are economic miracles because they actually are able to provide a better, more respectable standard of living than the rest of these uh, quote unquote liberated countries of equal developments. Would you like me to show you the Human Development Index to clarify? Um. I don't know that. I mean, you could. I, I'm not sure that would be uh, useful at this point. I, let me just make a point. And if you want, if you think it would help to show that, um, I welcome you to. But just the idea of sanctions. So, I was thinking. I don't know that it's right to prohibit uh, individuals within, say, the United States from trading with individuals within North Korea or Cuba, 
maybe the the U.S. government shouldn't prohibit that, um, unless you know the the country is at war with us. So if 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 North Korea or Cuba is going to attack us, then maybe it makes sense to stop individual private individuals from trading with private individuals in the other country. Um, so I don't know that it's right to put sanctions at this point when we're not at war on private trade. Uh, you might, as an individual, decide not to trade with people in those countries, though. So, um, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe so. So Cuba ranks at seventy, and with the example of Haiti, Haiti is like their next door neighbor, right? So Haiti ranks one hundred and seventy on the list, and the Dominican Republic or Dominica ranks 94th on the list. And if you look at some other countries in the region, Cuba actually performs exceptionally well relative to the rest of these quote unquote liberated capitalist countries of equal economic development. So yes, they are very poor countries, but if they weren't being deliberately undermined and constantly at siege by the world's number one superpower, I would wager that they would be in a much better position economically at at the present time that's that's all i'm trying to say so you're saying the uh you said cuba was around 70 or something and yeah cuba is at 70 the dominican republic at like 94 and then haiti's <coughs> door neighbor is at 170 out of 196 countries yeah i mean in general i think there's a correlation between freedom and prosperity and i don't think that's an accident i think there's a reason why it has to be that way i mean there could be freak things that cause it to go out of kilter like if you get hit by an earthquake and that devastates your your, your country um that could throw you back but at least in the long run i think the countries that have more freedom are going to do better yeah and i think it has to be that way yeah well then if Cuba and, well, if, let's say North Korea is, ranks higher than most of India and Nepal and Indonesia and a bunch of other countries in South America, if freedom is corollary with uh, general wealth and prosperity, by that very logic, North Korea is a more free country than Nepal and India. Well, I don't know all the history. I mean, what is, I mean, where did they start? So... North Korea is is more is uh, better off than Nepal. You're saying? Oh yeah, yeah. No, uh, the DPRK. I'm just speaking strictly from the Human Development Index, which is a general measure of life expectancy, education, literacy rates, infant mortality, and like you know income per per person per house. I'm saying that the DPRK ranks better than its than most of its capitalist neighbors that. I'm just saying it ranks better than most of its neighbors of similar economic developments. Basically, that's all. Okay, of similar economic. Okay, so yeah. Wait a minute. It's wait. I thought we were saying that. I thought you were saying that the uh, North Korea is better economically than. They're worse. So in other words, they're not. There's not similar economic development between North Korea and a place like Nepal. North Korea is better. Well, no, I'm I'm saying like 
when you measure their wealth, like the total, the total, like say GNP gross national product, for example, I'm saying that these countries, when compared to other countries or regions with similar gross national product, they provide better living standards for their people is what I'm trying to say, like comparatively speaking. Uh, yeah. But when you compare the DPRK or Cuba to a first world country, a wealthy nation like the United States or New Zealand or, you know, any of the Europe, Western European countries, of course, they're going to rank way lower. You know, they're not nearly as developed. They're sanctioned and they have their backs into a corner and their country is largely unsuitable for growing food. It's a very mountainous country. They have a lot of geographical disadvantages as well. I mean, really, the DPRK, if you think about it, shouldn't even exist. It's a fucking economic miracle that's held together by their planned economy. Uh, I mean, I don't think this geographically is like, I think, uh, what's the country, Singapore or Hong Kong? It's just a, a little islands, um, but it's done phenomenally. It's not, it's not ge geographic factors. It's freedom. I mean, you can, I think that's what allowed a place like Hong Kong to do so great. Um, so I think that that's a good example of how it's freedom that leads to prosperity rather than something like geography. After World War II, um, the Asian tigers acted as hard points against the Russians as well as the Chinese, whom at the time were enemies of the United States. These points were solidified and had billions of dollars of capital, i.e. investment, dumped into them. A lot of these regions were regions that were deliberately pampered. I'm not so sure about Singapore, but I can tell you for a fact that Japan, Hong Kong, and uh, South Korea were propped up by the West. All right. These were countries like if you know the history of the Asian tigers were countries that were directly propped up and had massive amounts of aid and support from the United States as well as Britain after World War II. And that's the reason why they're so highly developed and highly advanced. They were propped up. They were made this way on purpose. It's the same reason why West Germany was rebuilt so quickly. It's because they dumped like billions of dollars of capital to rebuild the country overnight with like the Marshall Plan, as well as like the deals with Japan and so on. And the reason why we did it is again, forts, hard points against our geographical or geopolitical enemies, the Soviets and the Chinese. Well, I think it probably had something to do with freedom too. <laughs> Maybe South not just Korea that. was a fascist dictatorship for decades. Uh, Singapore is an extremely repressive, highly ultra-conservative country, and Japan is one of the most alienated places on the planet. I'm thinking of Hong Kong. Yeah. But by by the way, um, do we want to go to questions? Are yeah, questions? yeah. We can we can go ahead and wrap this up. Um, I don't really have a closing statement. I I think I've said everything that I want to say. So you can close if you want. I don't have a closing statement. I didn't write anything. Okay, I didn't I didn't prepare one either. Um, so I guess uh, maybe maybe I'll, since you don't have one, I, I think I'll I'll just forego my my opportunity as well, and we can just go to questions if yeah, anyone has yeah. questions. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Throw, throw the questions at us. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, let's see. So I guess, is there a, a link on YouTube people can use to, um, do you know, want to invite them into the stream labs or just have the mask on? Yeah. So if you look, if you look, um, you should be able to see the private chat in the comments on the right side. And uh, you should just be able to click on uh, the comments 
and it should show. So this guy against the river has a question for you for Dan, or you, I can just give you the link on YouTube if you want. All right. Well, here, let me go ahead and just send the link it to you. Can you, can, do you see the private chat? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to post in the private chat and if you'd like to look at the stream comments, you can open up there. Just make sure to mute the YouTube stream so that I don't hear the echo. I don't hear okay. the reverb or feedback from you. Just make sure to mute it. Um, hold on. So here's a question by, from Against the River. If freedom is prosperity, why capitalism destroyed Russia? If freedom is prosperity, why did capitalism destroy Russia? Um, I'm not sure what he's referring to. Like, is he saying that Russia became capitalist? Uh, well, first of all, I, I don't think anywhere is capitalist, but maybe he's saying to the extent that Russia was capitalist, it was destroyed. So is he talking about like the period of Yeltsin or, or what? Yeah, not... he, he's referring to uh, the 90s under Boris Yeltsin. Um, I don't I don't know enough about that to to say anything um, to say that so I, I don't I don't concede that that period is evidence that capitalism destroyed Russia I I mean there's the way history is told I think depending on what side of the issue you're on you can you can try to spin it in one way or the other and if I looked into the facts Myself, I might have a very different take on it and say, no, that wasn't capitalism or what. So um, I just, I, I guess I don't concede the premise of the question that capitalism did destroy Russia. Yeah, hold on. Anyways, uh, so this, this kid's from Russia, by the way. He's talking about USSR and he's saying we literally starved. So what happened was after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, within the first year of the Russian Federation, approximately 40% of the country's value, its GDP, of like literally 40% of their like machinery, their product, everything was immediately sucked out of the country. They lost like over a third of their GNP, GDP within like the first year. And, uh, all the state-owned enterprises got privatized. A bunch of places got shut down. Capital flight was rampant. And as uh, a bunch of foreign banks and corporations came in and basically colonized the country. And uh, there was a lot of poverty and immiseration during this time. Millions of people, if you run the calculations, uh, if the Soviet Union remained through the 90s, uh, you would actually be able to abstract roughly seven to eight million deaths following the uh, restoration of capitalism in Russia and the former Soviet Socialist Republics. So uh, this guy has a question. Capitalism doesn't exist. What's capitalism to you? What is it? Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I tried to sketch that out in my beginning statement. A completely voluntary system where no one is allowed to use... The, including the government, uh, no one is allowed to use physical force against others. So I think we came pretty close to that in the late 19th century after slavery had been abolished, but before the era of uh, the progressives when government started to interfere massively with people's lives. So I would say the late 19th century is in America is the closest I can think of of an example of uh, capitalism. Right, right. Um... 
So I don't really know if you have any other examples, um, but so I think there's a equivocation or not an equivocation, but I think they're one of the problems is we have a different definition of uh, maybe a different definition of capitalism. From your side, you see as an ideal worth striving towards, right? Or an ideal worth fighting for, right? Yeah. All right, well, I see it as a historical phenomenon and an economic system that dates back roughly 230, 240 years. Um, there's some more questions here though. Why not talk about morality instead of cherry-picked political class that have nothing to do with Dan's definition? Bearing telling that you wanted to throw it out. All right, so what I was trying to point out by by cherry-picked political cases, cherry, these are like very solid anecdotes that I was using to facilitate the point that there is an incentive to engage in this bad behavior in the first place and that morality individual morality had nothing to do with it. It's the system that creates that creates this behavior. Um, maybe I didn't do a good job clarifying that. My apologies. Anyways. Yeah. Anywho, um, I don't really see any other questions here. We'll give it a couple more minutes, but uh, what are you gonna do after this? <laughs> Uh, well, I actually have another debate later tonight on a different topic. Of, oh, cool. You should uh, link me to it. I'll watch it. Well, it's just a written debate. It's on Facebook. It's like oh, okay. it's about Christianity and whether it's good for the world. Um, so I, I, I actually did a written statement for that uh, several days ago, and then someone did an opposing statement. And then we did two rounds of rebuttals, and then today is going to be like a cross-examination uh, where we ask each other questions, um, but I've, yeah, so that's, that's what's on the slate for later today. How about you? Oh, I'm going to enjoy this weather, man. It's beautiful out. I'm probably about to go take my dog on a walk. It's beautiful out there. Listen to some music, but yeah, a couple more questions. A lot of these are for you. Um, he says, for a proponent of capitalism, you see, seem to be unaware of how global imperialist institutions work. IMF, for example, the USA is so wealthy from the sheer plunder of the third world. Um, I don't really know what the question is. Well, as far as being unaware of how global imperialist... I, so imperialist, what does that mean? Does that mean you, uh, initiating aggressive tactics, using physical force to... Um, get your way with other people? If so, I, I wouldn't describe that as capitalist. I would say it's capitalist if you go to some other country and you make some kind of voluntary offer that you know someone can accept or reject as they voluntarily choose. Right. Um, so, and just in general, I'm pretty new to debating these this kind of issue. This is the very first uh, live debate, at least, that I've done on this, on this topic. So um, I don't know a whole lot about these kinds of issues, the IMF yeah. and so forth. I, I suggest you read about them because they pertain very heavily to, uh, I mean, fine. You don't want to call it capitalism, global capitalism. That's fine. We can call it global corporatism, call it uh, Bruggenheim and Schmidt, as long as we both know what we're talking about here. Well, yeah. imperialism yeah. in the Leninist definition of the term is simply the, uh, it is this, it is, it's a stage of capitalism. It's a state of being where capitalism has pretty much competed and, dominated its own uh, foreign markets. It's the age of monopoly capitalism, basically. You have monopolies, you have cartels of uh, centralized uh, capitalist institutions that have dominated 
their own local markets to the extents to where they now need to export capital and they now need to go and compete and dominate foreign markets of other countries in order to continue to secure profits. So that's more or less a basic, basic summary of it. It's basically the stage of monopolies and cartels. It's when these large, massive corporations go transnational. But anyways, a few more questions. Um, OP has a question. If I don't submit to wage labor, I will starve and die. Although I haven't actually been forced by threat of violence, I still have been given a choice to work or die. How is this not coercive? Uh, so if you are, um, if you're on a desert island, to so go back to that thing I mentioned before, you can work and try to survive or, or not, and you can just let yourself die. Um, so I don't think mother nature is coercing you. I think the way that term coercion is used in a discussion of politics is when a human being uses physical force, not just some fact of nature that, um, reality confronts you with. So, um, if you are given an opportunity to work uh, for a wage, your alternative is to is not just to die. You can try to survive on your own, just as you would have to survive on your own on a desert island. Now, it turns out that your your chances of being able to survive are probably a lot better um, if you do work for an employer than if you do try to survive on your own. It's very difficult, which is why I think you know people should be thankful that they are giving these opportunities to work for corporations. They don't have to just completely survive on their own as, you know, self-sustaining farmers on a desert island. That's very difficult. Um, so I, I don't think you're being coerced. I think you're giving, being given a, a better opportunity, which, you know, you should be thankful for. All right. Well, S4A wanted to follow up with this point, but he says, when talking about wealth of Cuba, Cuba is not siphoning off surplus value for itself via IMF. Well, that's great. So this is a question for me. How much do you know about modern day statism? actually worked out. How much do you know about modern day statism? You, you may want to rephrase that question because I don't exactly know what you're asking me. Um, how do you know much modern day statism actually worked out? I mean, statism, what what, what do you mean by statism? Uh, like as an ideology? Like, Dan, what what's statism? That way I can answer this person. Uh, it's, it's a term that Ayn Rand uses. I'm actually going to something called the Ayn Rand lexicon where a lot of terms are defined, and I'm going to look up statism and see if I get you quick. Uh, oh, here, okay. So the entry on statism says uh, the well. It's, I don't know if it's the definition, but anyways, it says uh, political expression of altruism is collectivism or statism, which holds that man's life belongs to man's life and work belong to the state, to society, to the group, the gang, the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of him in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal collective good. So I guess the idea of statism is just that you owe your life to the state, basically. Your life is not an end in itself to do with as you please. Rather, it's your duty to serve the states. Um, and maybe so, the question so is saying, like, so how well did that kind of... So fascism. Um, you serve you serve a tyrannical state. At that just might war. be a yeah. Okay, no, I'm not a fascist. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> why are you using a definition of capitalism that no one else uses? That's I guess for, that's for me. Yep. Um, 
I don't, I don't know that I am using, I mean, so I'm using Rand's definition. I don't know that, um, uh, so I think basically her definition picks out the essence of the capitalist system. So, uh, so it's a system that protects property rights, uh, in which individual rights are respected. So basically meaning, um, People have the right to do whatever they want as long as they're not coercing using physical force against these others. Now, right. I, I don't know like how widespread that definition is, but I think it's a definition that cuts reality at the joints. I think it gets to a, a key fundamental characteristic which distinguishes political systems from, from each other. So I think that is an important definition to have, uh, whether it's the definition you use for the term capitalism or not. That's the... I think that's the key issue in politics is whether people are forced or not. And right. I, you know, I favor the system of not forcing people. So I got yet another one, which kind of pertains to the previous. Why are we separating capitalism from the existence operations of the free market? Why is it an idea instead of the actual socioeconomic system that we're in? Well, I, the first question there, I don't know that I am separating capitalism from the existent operations of the free market. I, I, I think that those are, I don't know if they're synonyms, capitalism in the free market, but they're, I think, very, very closely related, at least. Gotcha. I, I don't see this second part of the question. I think you have another one this, up this, now. Yeah, no, this live stream began at two o'clock. So if you want to see the whole thing, you'll want to rewind from the very beginning. It began at two o'clock Eastern. Uh, hold on, someone, someone, Yeast has another question. Uh, if people should be thankful for employment, how do you think, uh, how do you explain that the socialist countries had no unemployment? Have no unemployment? Yeah, they had full uh, employment. Full employment. Um, I don't, I'm not sure about like how does the two halves of this connect. If people like, so is the implication that if, if, uh, If people should be thankful for employment, how do you explain that socialist countries have no, I mean, if it's just dictated by the government, if everyone is, I don't know how you force, first of all, how do you, how do you dictate that there is no unemployment? Does that mean you're forcing people to provide other people with jobs? Um, well, the, and what kind they, of jobs are you forcing also? Well, no one's forcing, I guess you kind of are being forced because you need money to pay bills, but that's capitalism too. So, um, no, it's actually jobs are a constitutional right in the socialist countries. You have a right to a job. You have a right to work, a right that you do not have in capitalist countries. Yeah. So if you have a right to a job, that means someone is being forced to provide you that job. So I would object to forcing people to provide you with jobs. Oh, right. How much do you know about how socialism, how statism, socialism, communism, fascism, how it worked out? Well, I wouldn't equate fascism with socialism. Uh, they're kind of like completely opposite com political tendencies. The only thing that they both have in common is that they lean on the state. The difference is that socialist countries have historically worked towards the interests of the ruling class, which was the proletariat. Well, fascist countries typically have like a warrior caste that 
governs and rules exclusively through the executive branch. Um, that's not the way political economy operates in his historically existing socialist countries. It, it, it's not just pure exec rule by the executive branch like fascism is. But um, so how it worked out? Well, every fascist regime of the note generally doesn't last longer than 10 to 15 years. It'll usually just slip back into liberalism after a threat to capitalism is over which is usually socialism. As for socialism in practice, uh, I mean, the, the, the history speaks for itself. Virtually every country that's went socialist has dramatically improved the living conditions of everybody within the country. So yeah, most of those countries are gone, but I'm just saying when we first had socialism, a lot of good came out of it. As for communism, hasn't, it doesn't exist. It's never been here. Uh, Communism, by definition, is a stateless, classless, moneyless society. And unless you count the Stone Age as communism, we have never had true communism. Anyways, let me scroll down. I'm going to take a couple more here. Let me let me ask you something, Dan. Someone, or I don't know if this is for me or you, but someone's asking, who was economically more free, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union? Oh, um... I mean, those board, both seem, strike me as horrible regimes, um, very anti-capitalist with all the force. I mean, you had the Nazis, you know, the Holocaust, that certainly is forcing a lot of people to the point of death in the Soviet Union, abolishing private property. And um, so I, I would hate to have to choose between those, but I, I don't know who is economically more free. Yeah. They were both extremely unfree. That's what I know. <laughs> I would say from a business standpoint, Nazi Germany was more free because all of uh, Hitler's policies pretty much worked to prop up and restore lost profitability in big industry. So I would say at least from the liberal standpoint that uh, that Nazi Germany was the more free country. But anyways, uh how do people become scientists? Oh wait, never mind. Please do not lie. Someone's saying, please don't lie, Trav. I haven't lied about anything. Look at the actual results. If you think pe better life is achieved by murdering millions. Of okay, so you wanna know why people bring this up? Why they always talk about uh, millions murdered by communism? Uh, it's just a thought terminating cliche, as I was talking about earlier. You are guilty of the very thought terminating cliche that I called at the very beginning of my essay uh, at the very start of this debate. Basically, it's just a way to say that to not think critically or deeply about these issues. It's like, oh, well, uh, socialism bad because millions of people like are like who exactly did socialism kill? Like what what exactly are we talking about? Uh, are we talking about Nazis like Germans in World War Two? Because if those are the kinds of people socialism are killing, then I mean, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, like, are you talking about the famine deaths? Like people will bring up famines like. Okay, so a, fram a famine-prone part of the world had a famine, and then they never had another famine again. All right, I, I don't really see what point you're trying to make here. It's it's just dumb. Like, what do you what do you mean? Oh, you're talking about famines, exactly. I I called it. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and debate you because I have questions to get to. I don't really have time to clear up your misconceptions. But here's what I will say: famine-prone, war-torn regions of the world, prone to famine for centuries. They have a famine, and then they never have another famine again. 
They proceed to industrialize, modernize their countries, and calorie consumption is soaring, linearly increasing ever since. So to blame social famines on socialism, I could very much as easily sit here and whine and cry and moralize about the Irish potato famine, which claimed the lives of 10% of the Irish population uh, because of the uh, policies, the starvation policies imposed by the Commonwealth Great Britain. So, but anyways. Uh, by the way, my battery on my laptop is about to die, but I dialed in to it's the okay. phone, so. You're back. Okay. Cool. I'm gonna remove your. Uh, I'm gonna remove your laptop from the studio. Hold on. There we go. Now you're on phone. Uh, let's close this in a couple minutes. Um, Venezuela is not socialist. Moving on. Uh, anyways, why should there should any area be prone to famine? Teeks. Europe suffered from famine for literal fucking centuries. Famines are a common occurrence in early agrarian civilizations because people don't have perfect planning and because you get bad weather sometimes. Like, to say that it's unique to socialism for famines to happen, like, famines were a natural cyclical thing across the world for thousands of years. What the fuck are you talking about? Anyways. Anyways, uh... Question for Dan. We have a private healthcare system where 45,000 Americans die every year because they can't afford healthcare. Isn't that proof that for-profit healthcare does not work? Okay, so I would disagree with the premise of the question that we have a private healthcare system. And I would point to Medicaid, which has been around for uh, close to five decades, uh, 1965. Um, we've had, uh, or Medicare has been around since 1965. We also have Medicaid. We have the food and drug administration. I think that was started, was that under FDR? So you've had this, uh, bureaucratic regime, which is, I think, holding back medical progress, um, for, for many decades. Uh, I think stem cell research is not fully free. Um, so I think we had massive government intervention in the healthcare industry, and I think it has made things much worse. So that's what I would say to this. Yeah, gotcha. All right, well, I think that's the last question that I'm going to take. Well, one more. Um, we'll do one more. Fuck it. Uh, by S4A, one last time. Uh, question, how is capitalism freer than socialism when the free market is dominated by a tiny minority of billionaires? who control most of the stock and other wealth that everyone depends on. So it's, it's free and freer than socialism in the sense that people aren't coerced. So I think it's important to distinguish between economic power and political power. I think you can gain more economic power, the wealthier you become, but I think that's a lot different than gaining the power to force some people. So as I said, under capitalism, everybody is equal under the law. So whether you're a billionaire or you're a pauper, if you kill somebody, you're going to jail. I would argue not necessarily, but the debate's over. Um, anyways, I uh, don't really have anywhere else to go with this. But uh, yeah, goodbye, everyone. Um, this is the end of the stream. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for your time. I enjoy having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh Everybody, take it easy. Sorry, we're not taking any more. Actually, fine. One more, one more. Is poverty a choice? Someone's asking if poverty is a choice. Asking me? Yeah. Um, 
well, I mean, you could choose not to work or you, and you could be lazy and decide you're going to live on less or you could choose to work. So in a sense, I mean, I could I could quit my job and become poor. So in that sense, it's a choice where I could continue choose to continue working and try to get out of poverty if I'm already in poverty. So in a sense, it's a choice. Okay. All right. And with that being said, that's the last answer for the evening. Y'all, Red Salute.